Well, even if they did use the KA and KU bands, which reserved for satellite communications so they weren't interfering, even then, the revenue hit to their national telephone companies was certainly a deep concern. And to operate an earth facility to receive the signal was also a big concern. So they refused to give them license. Even before the last spacecraft was launched, Motorola declared Iridium bankrupt and started to walk away. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, we're talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I had a discussion about satellites and especially the newer low Earth orbit internet services, which are taking the world by storm. Jeff, welcome back. What should we talk about this time? As a nerd, you know, I always think the coolest nerd thing possible is rockets. Oh. I know, isn't it amazing? And indeed, this is a real kind of 20th century, 21st century kind of story. And I suppose in a little while, we're going to start talking about internet services from up in the sky, but I'd like to spend a couple of minutes getting there because I reckon this story is just a gorgeous story. I do like a good rocket story. <laughs> well, I have to take you back to the plague years, not of COVID plague, but the Black Death in London in, I think it was 1642. And Isaac Newton's family didn't like him being in that, you know, cesspit of infection called London and shunting him out into the country. And he had a remarkable period of work that he did. So lockdown, ISO gave him his creative energy. <laughs> it worked for him. It did work for him. Yes. And, you know, oh, sitting under an apple tree, falling on his head. I wonder what this gravity thing is. No, no, no. His experiments and calculations were actually based around gravity, but were in an entirely different bent. And it was sort of this thought experiment that said, if I throw a ball or a rock, you know, moderately quickly, it'll go a while before it falls to earth. And if I throw it faster, it'll go further before it falls to earth. If I throw it fast enough, what's going to happen? And he postulated that if you throw it faster than 11 kilometers per second. That's one hell of a throwing arm. It is a good arm, but it'll never come back to Earth. So if you throw it really fast, faster than that, this rock, this tennis ball, whatever you're throwing at that speed, is, is off to the way beyond. It's never coming back to Earth probably to the sun, I guess. But there is this critical speed that if you throw it just fast enough, it'll never fall to Earth, but it will circle it because the Earth's gravitation will capture it, but it's moving fast enough that it never quite brings it down. And it kind of sat there as a thought bubble. This is cool, but... It wasn't really useful because, as you said, that's a big throwing arm, right? <laughs> 11 kilometers a second. 17th century, they didn't generally have the technology that was going to practically demonstrate this happening. Right. Not even gunpowder would make things go that fast for sustained periods. But along came a gentleman whose full name, to give him credit, is Dr. Robert Hutchings Goddard. And yes, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center is named after him. And in 1926, he was mucking around with what we call liquid fuel. And one of these is make oxygen very, very cold and it turns into a liquid. You bring something flammable near it and it does go bang pretty badly. You know, it's good. And so he constructed these strange little devices and in 1926 was actually able to get one of these sort of rockety things up, a long way up, 
I think I've seen pictures of this. There's two guys in plus fours and a weird contraption of kind of tubes like ASCII letter O and the rocket engine is in the top half of it for some bizarre reason that I simply do not understand. It's a truly weird rig, but whether it looks like a rocket as we know it or not, the point is he worked out a way to use liquid fuels to get some truly phenomenal acceleration. Exactly. And it sort of sat there as an oddity until German physicists in the 1940s, in fact, a little bit before that, started taking up this work and introduced fuel pumps, gimbal steering, gyroscopes, and started to sort of create these long pencil-like, you know, barrels of fuel with a pump at the bottom and an ignition system, and it just used to go up very, very high. And they turned it into a V-2 missile at the time, and that's great. Or not, except if you're underneath it when it came back to Earth. It was all relative, really. But at the end of the war, both the Russians and the Americans raced to that base, uh, Pinamund, to try and get hold of the scientists. One of them, Dr. Werner von Braun, reappeared in America and started working on the Americans' program. But others went into Russia and were working on a similar program in Russia because I suppose it had a military application, but it also had potential use in communications. Most of these were sort of based on the V2 design, and they gradually got a bit better. But in October 1957, the Russians stole the forefront. They stole the limelight because they launched a soccer ball. It wasn't just a soccer ball, but it was the same size. It had a bit of antenna on it. It had some, some batteries inside it, and it went beep, beep, beep. And they got it into orbit. And so this thing circled the Earth, including over America, going beep, beep, beep. And if there was a space race, at that point, the Russians were, you know, Russians won, Americans zero. And this motivated the Americans going, oh, my God, we can't have this happen, not on, on in the American skies. We're going to do something about that. And effectively, in the next few years, a huge amount of initiative and money was handed into the American system to try and develop that. Now, this was the time of Robert Kennedy's presidency when he made the extraordinary claim in the early 1960s that by the end of the decade, they were going to redress this you know, space race and win it by putting a man on the moon. Bold claim to make. Bold claim, considering the technology at the time, you know, it's highly likely that none of them would make it back even if they got there, you know. But there was another thing he did which was equally sort of interesting. He decided, and indeed the Kennedy administration decided, that space would not be privatised. Almost a bit like the Antarctic, and I think the Arctic, it was not meant to be the preserve of private industry. It was going to be above all tawdry politics, and it was going to be nation states doing this. Now, in some ways, I guess it was just, it was so expensive that only nation states could afford it, and that's true. But equally, this lofty ideal that we weren't going to turn space into just another exploitative commercial battlefield. And so throughout the 60s, the Americans invented bigger and bigger and bigger rockets, invented well, a huge amount of technology. You could actually say the entire computing industry benefited from the Americans spending an enormous sum of money to actually build computers that worked as distinct from ones that you know counted on, on their digital fingers. And so an extraordinary amount of technology went on in this. And not only were they launching these manned spacecraft, and they were all men at the time, but they were also launching these communication satellites. From memory, they started with quite large inflatable passive reflectors. The Echo series, if I remember this right, were literally just giant, shiny, metallized balloons. And the idea was they gave something to bounce radio signals off. So at first, they could get things up there, but they didn't have a way to put power in them and do anything useful with signals. So they were just large reflectors. 
Yes, well, in actual fact, even when they got to the point, and the Americans, I think one of the first was a thing called Telstar, it was the electronic version of just a giant mirror in space. You sent a signal up, it received the signal, it pushed the signal to a transmitting antenna and sent it back down again. But think about this for a second. If you're, oh, gee, 35,000 kilometres away, that's a lot of Earth you see. And so you and I could be almost at opposite sides of, of the Earth, and if we could both see the same satellite, we could talk. We could talk. Now, that's an astonishing property. No infrastructure on Earth, no cables, no wires. Look, it's just radio. And this was almost a revolution in thought. But then you've got to look at who could afford to use it because it was pretty expensive to put these soccer balls up there. (laughs) There was a lot of electronics going on. And, you know, even for use by telephone, um, that was a rare use and astonishingly expensive phone calls. I don't think I'd want to see the phone bill for the time cost on this one. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Dollars per second. But television could afford it. And one of the early sort of full-time users of this was actually television companies beaming signal around the world from these communication satellites. Well, that kind of makes sense. When you think about governments fund the sunk cost to do the development work for their own purposes, they then achieve getting these devices into space. They need to demonstrate some functional use. Mass communications a pretty good fit, isn't it? Because it gives reach to the community at large. And at the time we're talking, they might be private, but functionally, communications organizations behave like quasi-national bodies. They are essentially centrally administered large entity, non-commercial, non-competing situations. That's right. So I think it was Arthur C. Clarke the science fiction author, who actually sort of took Newton's work and and took it just that one step further, as people do. You see, if I throw my rock and I'm, I don't know, a thousand kilometres above the earth, it needs to move pretty damn quick to stay up there. That's fine. But let's say I build a ladder 35,000 kilometres high and throw my rock. It's probably the same speed, but there's now this weird property that it is falling around the Earth. Its orbit is the same period as the Earth's orbit on its own axis. So instead of the satellite whizzing across the sky, if you ever saw the International Space Station, it whizzed. You know, it's down low and it was moving. But at 35,000, and 500 or so kilometres up there, it doesn't whiz anymore because it's whizzing at the speed of you and I. It's one of those awful moments where we all know everything's moving all the time. We're rotating around the axis of the Earth, and the Earth is rotating around the axis of the Sun. So it's not that there's nothing moving here, but we're talking relative motion. In relative motion terms, if you're in the right height, 35,000 Ks up, moving around the Earth, the relative motion compared to a point on the ground is stationary. Stationary. So I can take one of those large dishes, antenna, and they were pretty big, and bolt it to the Earth and make it look in one spot. It never had to move, no motors, no tracking, and I aim it at that spacecraft. And I can then send it a signal, and I can receive a signal, different wavelengths so they don't interfere with each other. And all of a sudden, you have this rather cute property of a gigantic mirror hanging in the sky, 35,000 kilometers up. And I can send it a signal in Australia and have a listening station in, I don't know, an Earth station complex near Vancouver in Canada or on the west coast of the US. Uh, in California, and I can pick up the signal as it's reflected down. All of a sudden, you have global communications, and oh, simple-ish, I guess, 
but certainly easy. Easy because I don't have expensive and difficult satellite tracking, none of that stuff. These are just gigantic mirrors sitting in the sky at a fixed location. If we just break for a minute and think about stuff we've all experienced in our lives, coding things is how you get over the problem of interference and noise, but it's also got the property of how you can sometimes make use of a channel to communicate and send more than one signal. And it's no coincidence that the technologies we have now that are able to send two or three or four or 10 or 20 signals in apparently the same radio frequency at the same time exist because people look at this facility you've just described and say, gee, this is a very expensive machine for sending one voice up and one voice down. I really need to find a way to make this able to send more things. So these were big things. Not sure if they were the size of a bus. I think they were. And they were packed with what we call spot beams. So there was typically one antenna, which was what we call a hemispheric transponder. It wasn't aimed at anywhere in particular. It would listen across the sort of entire space downwards, and it would transmit the entire space downwards. There was one of those typically on craft a receiver and a sender. But it, there were also a number of highly focused spot beams that looked at a particular area. And uh, the Intelsat maps, because the UN body, Intelsat, an area of international cooperation, had, had slots in this geostationary orbit above each of the oceans, above the Atlantic, above the Pacific, above the Indian Ocean. And let's take the Pacific. It had spot beams aimed at G's. Japan, Korea, and, and the eastern seaboard of China. A spot beam aimed at Northern America, California and US, West Coast. A spot beam aimed towards Australia, and a spot beam aimed at South America on the western coast. And so they could handle multiple communications by effectively looking from different parts of the earth, looking down with these highly focused beams. And they could send the signal to just one area without interfering with signals being sent to other spaces. Clever. Clever. And useful. And useful. Useful for ships at sea, useful for all kinds of things. Hideously expensive. But for a long time, you know, it was a bit of a workhorse here because it was useful. But at the same time, the cable folk were building bigger and better cables. And certainly somewhere between using a cable and using a satellite Cables started to win over. 25-year service life, you can recoup the money over a long period of time. You can handle a lot more telephone calls through a cable, even a copper cable, than you could in a satellite with its limited spectrum bandwidth. So they were kind of there, but they serviced a niche that you couldn't do with cable, like in Marsat's ships at sea. Like, haven't got a cable towing behind the ship. Haven't <laughs> got a cable or, you know, head off somewhere in the bush, you know, a long way from anywhere then a satellite phone's all you've got left, right? So this went for a while, but it was hideously expensive. So we have a technology that's modern. It's a theory from the 17th century. We didn't have the capacity to put things into the position until the 20th century. End of the war, rocketry, moving out of military context, gets in the hands of America and Russia and an ability to get objects into a magic orbit that's stationary against an apparent point on the surface of the Earth emerges. It's good for broadcast communications, and so people start using it for things like public television, football games, the Eurovision Song Contest, international telethon-type things. It moves into telephony, but at the same time, exactly the things that people develop to share that bandwidth and use it to make it economically viable at scale turn out to be applicable to wires. And so you're saying the wires turn out to kind of steal a bit of a satellite's lunch when it comes to having a niche for service until all we're left with is kind of the set of things that a wire is too expensive to serve and a satellite is all you've got. Right, so Pacific Islands, satellite, until they finally got cable. Niche areas. But you remember when I said Kennedy had said no private enterprises? Well, 
that view kind of dissolved. And don't forget, the American government effort of putting large amounts of rocketry into space ceased with Apollo 17. Apollo 18 was actually built, and you can still see the rocket at Cape Canaveral. And if you're over there, have a look. It's a very, very big piece of machinery lying on its side. Highly impressive. But it was never launched because they decided this was just really a gigantic waste of money at that point. No one was watching it. It was ceasing to amuse the masses. Let's not do it no more. And so space was sort of put on hold. And it was a little bit of time before the space shuttle came in. But in that time as well, private industry started to prick up their ears and pay attention. And one of the folk who sort of noticed was that radio giant, Motorola. And Motorola did the sums and realized that instead of going for something way, way up there, 35,000 kilometers away, needing a big dish and big infrastructure, if you went very fast, just above the Earth's atmosphere, you could probably get there with a handheld piece of electronics. You wouldn't need a giant dish to pick up the signal and to send something down to the ground. Right. It wasn't exactly fit in your pocket. It was probably a two-handed thing, but that's all it was. It was just a big telephone, but it was still a battery-powered telephone, thought Motorola. Right, but that's the part about on the ground. But the part about up in space is if you're sending it up there, you want to make it as small as you possibly can. You don't want to have to have a dish the size of a football field to make this work. So they found a sweet spot of the technology they understood to make something they could launch that would also talk to devices on the ground. So let's talk for a second about sweet spots because, again, there's a little bit more physics coming in. Caution, physics alert. The difference between Mars and Earth and there is one, is that Mars is slightly smaller. Now, in all other respects, even geologically, they are pretty much the same. But because Mars is smaller, the gravitational force at the core, the iron core of Mars, was insufficient to keep it molten. And when the iron core solidified, it stopped rotating. Now, a rotating body of iron produces a magnetic field. We all remember this from physics. And the Earth has one. And that creates a magnetic field that comes out at either magnetic pole and wraps a world in this sort of magnetic blanket. Now, the reason why this is really important, we call this bank at the Van Allen belt, is that the sun, as well as emitting light, emits a whole bunch of other nasty, toxic stuff that we just simply call cosmic radiation. And without the Van Allen belt, we'd lose our atmosphere, just like Mars. It'd get stripped. Now, what you want to do with a satellite is either you've got to coat it with an awful lot of shielding and use wide-track electronics and stuff that can withstand pretty heavy-duty radiation, because up at the geostationary orbit, There's not much of the Van Allen belt left. You're above it. You're unprotected. You're exposed. And part of the reason why they're the size of a bus is, you know, old electronics, thick tracks. Yeah, and that's also why they deliberately use generations of CPU architecture, which to us are like the Stone Age. My God, they're still coding in 16-bit machines. Yeah, because those 16-bit machines are made with beautiful, fat, wide VLSI circuits that are big enough to survive some of this radiation. They'll take a lot of battery before they disappear, you know, in a, a meltdown. So, yes. But what Motorola thought was, well, what if I sneak in just under the Van Allen belt? Almost as if like being on Earth as humanoids, you know. We're protected by the Van Allen belt. Our wetware, our biology could not withstand outer space for long because, you know, it's rough out there. And so there's this area around about from 100 kilometers up to around 3,000 kilometers up, which is comfortably protected by the Van Allen belt. At 100 kilometers, you're in what we call legally space. 
bit close if you ask me. We, as nation states, decided by convention that the air above us all is owned by our country to a height of 100 kilometres, and after that, it's nobody's. It's lawless. It's beyond. And so, fascinatingly, if you get above 100 kilometres, you kind of, if you can tuck in under the Van Allen belt, but above the legal belt, you're not flying in anyone's territory. You are over, but in some weird definition of over, because you're pretty high. You're looking good, but you're looking even better than that, because there's one other piece of physics, and that is, how big is the Earth's atmosphere? You see, as you might have seen from all those wonderful videos of those Apollo spacecraft coming back to Earth, once they hit the Earth's atmosphere at speed, you get a lot of heat. Yeah. You get a lot of heat. As long as you can stay above that, you don't. Now, there's not a fixed size. When there's solar radiation, every 11 years there's a solar max, it kind of balloons out a bit. And so somewhere around 200 to approximately 350 kilometres, the Earth's troposphere, that upper part of the atmosphere, sort of gets down to nothing. And you're in that sweet spot where you're above the atmosphere, below the Van Allen belt, and zipping through the sky. So we're kind of finding a Goldilocks zone here. Somewhere that's close enough, you're protected by the magnetic field, but high enough that you avoid the burdens of moving incredibly quickly against the atmosphere. Because the other part of this story you haven't quite got to yet, I imagine, is these babies can't be stationary apparent to a point on the Earth. To stay that low, they've got to be moving. So I think it was the space shuttle that has an orbital time of 90 minutes, once around the Earth in 90 minutes. So if you're standing and looking up, there's this bright spot that is moving pretty promptly across your visible part of the sky if the, you know, the space shuttle was there or the space station was there above your sort of position on the Earth. So if you tried to make a communication service based on one low Earth orbiting satellite, it'd be pretty weird. You get 90 seconds and that's your blooming lot. <laughs> Yeah, for another 90 minutes, you know. A few seconds, do it again, wait, do it again. And you'd wait. be swinging your antenna across the sky to track it. You'd have to swing it pretty fast. Yeah. So Motorola thought, you know, hang on, why don't we launch a constellation of these so that when one disappears over the horizon in, well, I don't know if it's north, south, east, or west, it really doesn't matter, another one will appear on the horizon behind me. So at any point, there's at least one satellite I can see. And with a little bit of cleverness, say Motorola, with enough density of Earth stations, you can actually make these mirrors work. So you aim at mirror number one as it zips across the sky. And as it sort of descends below the horizon, you track back to satellite number two with the second mirror and track that across the sky and the next and the next. Now, do I need to track it? It's pretty close. And in space terms, you know, 200 kilometers is indeed next door. There's nothing in the way. So you might have an antenna that gets pretty terrible signal for part of the time, and then it's in a magic point and it's getting damn fine signal, and then it fades out again a bit, but you don't have to move that antenna very much if at all. And with enough up there, you don't even need to worry about it because you only need to look up, and instead of going horizon to horizon, you're just looking above and going swish, 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 straight on top of you. This is a situation which sounds like this would work wonderfully if only we had computers to decide how to do things, where to look, when to listen, when to move to the next one, how to manage my engagement with this constellation. It begins to sound like, as this could work if we had a computer to keep things running sweetly. And Motorola got there. They, at the time, data didn't really exist as a commercial market. So oddly enough, this was a telephone-based service where up in the sky were these gigantic reflectors that put you back down into the Earth's telephone network. But you could be 
on the top of Mount Everest. You could be anywhere on the planet. And then basically, as long as there was an earth station for the Motorola service, Iridium, somewhere close to you, you were there. You were there. Brilliant idea. Expensive, $30 billion. But all the folk who are running telephone networks on the surface of the earth saw competitor in bright, shiny, 10-foot-high letters and thought, you know, if they make all their money selling service to, I don't know, rich Europeans and rich Americans, when they appear over our sky, they don't need to make any money at all. They can sell their service at any price because they've made all their money in another market, so they can dump on us. Now, for Motorola to make Iridium work, they had to have spectrum licenses on each of the countries where they were going to offer service, physically all over the planet, legally only countries that signed up. So it's kind of a corollary to the it's my airspace 100 kilometers up and rising. It's also, I'm a country, I get to decide what radio frequencies are used and which way they're used. And radio waves, we, we talk about them as if they're beams, but they are essentially radiating surfaces. They're kind of like concentric spheres of noise coming out in particular tuned ways. And I kind of get why a country might say, if I'm using this frequency for police, fire, and emergency, I really don't want a random telco from America buzzing over me trying to use it to make phone calls. Well, even if they did use the KA and KU bands, which are reserved for satellite communications, so they weren't interfering, even then, the revenue hit to their national telephone companies was certainly a deep concern. And to operate an earth facility to receive the signal was also a big concern. So they refused to give them license. Even before the last spacecraft was launched, Motorola declared Iridium bankrupt and started to walk away. $30 billion. $30 billion in the incinerator. Now, Motorola launched the flag and said, this is a problem. We can't do anything with these. We're going to be responsible people. We're not going to leave this junk up there. We're going to burn them up in the atmosphere. We're going to take the station-keeping fuel that we had there, the hydrazine, and we're going to steer them down so it touches the Earth's atmosphere and the entire Iridium constellation will disappear in flaming glory. Much consternation in the US because many people were using it, including the US military. And while they didn't want to buy Iridium, they wanted it working. And so they persuaded someone to buy it off them for... 30 million. <laughs> you just dropped. And fascinatingly, even though they had 25 gallons of hydrazine in each spacecraft, which was meant to be enough for about five years, they're still up there and they're still doing just fine. So Iridium is still kind of a going service, except, and the biggest except is, it's a telephone-based circuitry that each circuit that you can get on Iridium is around 6.4 kilobits per second. It's like the very, very, very early days of mobile phones. And that Motorola experience, I think, scared everyone off until the latest round of billionaires appeared in the scene, the Elon Musks, the Jeff Bezoses of this world. Well- $30 billion isn't worth as much as it used to. So oh, now things have changed. But I suspect a quality here is a lot of that $30 billion was the cost of getting into space. Space was still an exceptionally expensive proposition. Launch cost was a large component of their spend. I'm not saying the satellites were free, far from it, but I bet you a lot of that money was the cost of getting things up there. Oh, absolutely. And of course, you've got to build it right and build it to last. You're looking at 25-year service life. When it's un- you know, Get down that satellite and repair it. No, 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 no. It's up there. It's just got to work until you burn it up. There's no repairing it. So it kind of sat there for a while as a salutary lesson on how to waste $30 billion until the billionaires came along. And you've seen it with Amazon and, and their rocketry 
You've seen it, of course, with Elon Musk and Starlink. We've even seen it with John Carmack of Doom fame and his attempts at getting into space. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. But in some ways, you've got to admire SpaceX because all the other ones, you create this massive sort of launch vehicle with its pumps and thrusters and gyroscopes and phenomenal electronics send it up to the atmosphere, and then it'll fall back to Earth, hopefully in the ocean so it doesn't hit anyone on the head, and that's the end of it. Pretty expensive. Mm. Even the space shuttle that the Americans had built, they were getting the booster rockets back, sort of, but not much else. You know, the stuff just fell to Earth. But Elon left enough fuel in these vehicles that he actually was able to land them. A few spectacular videos on YouTube of the early attempts when it didn't, But the latest ones are almost poetry in motion. So again, this is kind of our lived experience of space, is that we're used to the idea rockets are huge, rockets are phenomenally expensive, and rockets are one-time use. And instead, we now have somebody who said, well, rockets are huge, but they could be smaller than you think. Rockets are expensive, but they could be cheaper than you think. And in particular, they could be used more than once if you do this right. And if you're aiming for lower levels in the sky and you engineer differently. Right. And, and that's, that's the last piece of, of the puzzle here because it's only 550 kilometers up. So it's not the size of a bus. Oh, no, 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 no. It's basically a large shoebox and a folding sail, which is its solar panels. And that's it. So you don't launch one, you launch a rack of 30. And you don't build one with engineers, you know, pouring over this shoebox with their their tweezers and microscopes. You're on a production line. You're just making this stuff in bulk. So we've also moved from a belief that it must be five nines reliable because it's up there for 25 years to if one breaks, we put another 20 up and we'll move something slightly to occupy its spot. We don't have to engineer this to last forever. Right. And the last piece of this, which is also a cost reduction, the Americans, in fact, the space programs that everyone indulged in the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s, were dead set scared of taking biological material into space. Whoops. You know, we don't understand out there. Let's just make it as clean as we can. No such concern today. It's not terribly clean stuff that they're launching. It's only a low-Earth orbit. It's just built in a normal factory. There's nothing terribly special about it, and certainly not ultra-clean rooms and ultra-clean facilities. It's just stuff we built last week. Rack onto a launch vehicle, put it in a big rack, 30 of them, up we go, light the fuse, off it goes into orbit, at 550 kilometers high, recover the rocket and do it again and again. So there's also the benefit that across the time from Motorola and Iridium to current technology, everything in computing has got faster. So there's more smarts available in a smaller surface at lower power to do better signal encoding and better technology, as well as stripping costs out. The amount of work you can do up there has gone through the roof through the roof because with good digital signal processing, it's not 6.4 kilobits per second. No, 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 no. They have 30 gigs of capacity on each spacecraft. Now, there's lots of transponders as it moves across. It's almost like the eye of a bee or a fly. Multi-faceted transponders are moving up there. And if you're underneath one of them, one of them, you can pull about 200 to 250 megabits per second. So it's not 6.4 kilobits, it's 250 megabits. At this point, I would like to say that I'm sitting at home on a fibre to the house delivery for 50 megabits with 20 (laughs) up. I'm actually doing okay on that. So what you're telling me is this technology, which at the start of this conversation has really low signal bandwidth, it's ludicrously expensive, and basically it's only suitable for broadcast, has reached a level where it's now capable of delivering faster service than I'm currently buying using fiber optic delivery. Now, I have to say up front, 
you and I, George, live in Australia, relatively rich GDP per capita. So when we talk about $1,000 for the dish and $100 a month, we're not talking big money in Australian terms. Broadband services are of a similar sort of, of expenditure. Yeah. So yeah, this is eminently affordable and it's really fast. It's it's cool. And to some extent, you know, this is selling as a retail service. And Australia has certainly allowed Starlink to operate within Australia. So Australian customers can certainly mail order their phased array antenna, one meter by half a meter square thing that you put somewhere high. It doesn't need to be that high. On your roof is good. And it will track without moving these satellites as they whiz overhead, the Starlink satellites, because it's using another very, very cunning trick about how to do it without motors, phased array antennas. It's not one antenna. It's a grid of a few hundred in this flat panel. And if you subtly alter the phase of those antenna where they want to receive, you can actually aim this antenna, focus it as if it was a single antenna on a pole moving around. Electronically, you're doing that focusing. So these systems can track a spacecraft, a satellite, as it whizzes overhead and flip back to the next as it whizzes overhead. And in fact, you could probably divide this array into two or three components and track multiple spacecraft at once. Clever, isn't it? So that problem of having to track something, which implies having to reset, go back to the beginning and track another one, we've kind of moved to a space where, well, if I can track two at once, you won't be aware that I've right. switched you... between them because I'm going to do this so quickly, it's, it's seamless. totally seamless. You can hardly even see the switch at this point. So it's fast. My God, it's fast. Why? because it's only 550 kilometers. And at the speed of light, which is what we're talking about, it takes around 3.8 milliseconds. It's not far away. Geostationary satellites, way up there at 35,000 kilometers, you know if you're behind a geostationary service, because those poor old packets take two-thirds of a second to send across the satellite to the remote party and for the remote party to send you back the answer, the round trip time is, you know, a little higher than two-thirds of a second. So any kind of protocol that's trying to push data has to push across extraordinary delay that you hardly ever see on cable. But when you get the thing low enough, and don't forget, the speed of signal through fiber cable is not the speed of light. It is a photon, yes but it's a photon in glass, and glass slows down light. 0.65 the speed of light, just a little under two-thirds the speed of light. So if you and I are to the same point, and we've got fiber between us, and we've got a low-Earth orbiting system between us, or a constellation, correctly configured, the low-Earth orbiting system might well be faster. It's a quite interesting inversion of the economic questions around what kind of technology do I want to use to get connected. I like having the glass delivery. I like having the fiber to the door. But at the point where the cost of service is within scale, the infrastructure cost to make this available to a lot of people, and particularly rural and remote people, to lay that fiber, that infrastructure cost is really non-zero. And we start to get back to the regulatory component of what it is to be in a digital online economy. You've got to have the universal service obligation if you're going to equalize for distance and give people in rural and remote locations access to high-speed bandwidth, give them the same fiber experience I've got, you've got to play a bloody driver to drive out there with a big truck of fiber and lay it. Well, and it's a long way. And you've got to power it and you've got to set up infrastructure locally. So if you could flip this over to using low Earth orbit satellites, and if it's the same kind of delay and the same kind of bandwidth, this is starting to sound like this is a really good fit. You ever seen those annoying television sales ads from your youth? But wait, there's more. Yes. But wait, there's more. Because 
Starlink is moving to its Generation 2 satellites. You see, the thing about low-Earth orbiters and mirrors, if all they are is a mirror, then you need to have an Earth station within a few hundred kilometres of where you are for every value of you. Because what's actually moving is almost like a set of torch beams moving across the Earth. And you need to have both the sender and receiver inside the same lit halo of space of Earth. So if you want reward coverage, you still need fibre infrastructure or something else to bring all those receiving stations and feed it back into the network. So you're saying there's a cost component of infrastructure that still has to exist if this is the model you're working on. It's not exactly, it's as cheap as the cost of the dish at each consumer. There has to be a station somewhere within that circle. So if you start in the centre of Australia, Alice Springs, and drive for a day west into the great something or other desert, I think it's the great stony desert, there are still the same Starlink you know, satellites over your head. But without an earth station, it's useless. There's no one to receive the right. reflected signal. It's not quite as simple as it sounds. Whereas if you're in the outer suburbs of a big metro area and you then talk about towns and villages within 100 kilometers of there, you can still yeah, do right. this and you can save some money, but it's not actually getting you out to the deep bush. But wait, there's more. Because V2, Generation 2, is equipped with lasers. Oh, great. Lasers. Oh, great. And they're basically self-steering lasers. They actually lock in. And each of these V2 craft, of course, have lasers and receivers. And it's space. Ah, I don't need So this isn't about lasers pointing down at us. This is about... (laughs) Lasers pointing to each other. And they operate again at the speed of light. It's just unguided photons. So you can beam up, hop across, and come down. I could beam up where I am, east coast of Australia, hop across, gee, can I hop across 30 of them, 100 of them, and come down in London? Well, you could. Wow. All of a sudden, I don't need a huge amount of dense earth station deployment to cover the world. I'm kind of sitting here thinking that's a lot of switching going on up there in space. There's a lot of behavior which sounds quite like what happens inside extremely expensive crossbar switches in a data center, working out how to handle hundreds and thousands of packet routing decisions across this field. But unlike a data center where at least the racks don't move as long as there's no earthquakes, these things are constantly in motion. I guess they're kind of stationary mostly with respect to each other. But nonetheless, you've got a grid of things. You've got a routing decision to make. Well, you've got a bit of routing, and I actually don't know, Starlink are not sort of forthcoming on huge amounts of detail, whether they're going to go the whole hog or whether they're going to do partial. Partial says, I create effectively virtual circuitry. I have set paths that receive over a broad area and knock the circuit back down into Earth infrastructure at known points. So when I collect a signal, I send it towards the satellite that's over the collecting point at that time. Quite easy to do, certainly not a complex problem. We know how to do that. That might not be getting you, Jeff, to someone in London, everything happened up in space. But if you happen to be at Udnadatta on the track, it would get you, Jeff, to a receiving station for high bandwidth terrestrial, perhaps two satellite hops away. And so it, it kind of increases that footprint to an economically interesting size. So I get a much broader pickup and still have a relatively simple Earth station you know, infrastructure. And that might be the, the first pass. It doesn't need a huge amount of electronics. And the Gen 2 spacecraft are bigger. They weigh more, more solar panels. There's more in there. But they're by no means supercomputers yet. So that's the first step. Second step, multiple orbital planes. So you laser it further up to the intersatellite plane, do a more complex switching, and then lever it back into the close one, and then drop it back down to Earth. 
So somebody once said to me, the problem with satellite communications is really the atmosphere. And the LEO satellites are sitting in that sweet spot. They're above the drag of the the atmosphere, and they're below the Van Allen belt. But also the signal that they do, if they used, for instance, lasers for communication, it would have all of the problem of transmitting through the atmosphere. So they stay in radio frequency because that mostly works. If we now imagine there's a layer of satellites close to us we can see and talk to, and there's a layer of satellites higher above, it doesn't have that burden, does it? Their laser communication is completely unimpeded by atmosphere. It's remarkable. It's such a seductive dream, and I can see why the Starlink folk are kind of going, well, if the launch cost is low enough, and there's no real limit on how many I can put up there, and they're going for 12,000 satellites. The answer is, well, you know, okay. Well, no real limit. So we are still talking that although space is in principle no longer no commercial use, it's a highly regulated space. It's not. And in some ways, these companies are going for local regulatory clearance in a number of regimes and kind of going to the rest of the world, well, I'm not going to ask you, I'm just going to do it. Wow. And so there has been an ongoing conversation between Starlink and the FCC over what happens with these spacecraft when they're above America. And Jeff Bezos's company, Amazon, has just you know got some tentatively approvals from the FCC for his Kaipap system of 4,000 spacecraft. And the Chinese have just gone public, yeah. and they haven't asked the FCC, I'm like, why would they, on plans to launch 12,000 of their own. And I believe there's a European initiative in a similar sense to provide a service that is subject to European regulatory. So rules. here we go with this amazing resource, that narrow belt above the atmosphere and below the Van Allen belt where if you launch enough, even though they're whizzing around, there's always two or three in view. And the electronics is good enough, below the Van Allen belt, don't need to sort of line it with lead, where you can actually do surprisingly good stuff and you can provide pretty decent service. Now, it's not cheap, but it certainly gets to all the corners of the earth that you'd like to get to. But, well, we say it's not cheap, but I suspect in so many ways, in infrastructure terms, it's still significantly cheaper than fiber to the nation. This is a mechanism that is never going to be free, but the price point can work for a lot of people. Well, once you move out of cities and once you move out of high density, and cities are best done with fiber, there's just too many people and not enough spectrum facing up, that's done. But once you move into sparser areas, this is almost a perfect match. Because there's not enough folk to justify a dense earth-based fibre build-out because, you know, the houses pass, the density makes that investment in fibre just a waste of money. And that's why large countries like Australia have always struggled with broadband everywhere. It's not the cities that are your problem. It's the bits that aren't cities, which, which are going to kill you financially. So in that area, these kinds of services make a huge amount of sense. That's true. But there is a problem. And it's worthwhile remembering that while space is really, really big, the orbital planes in which they operate are not that dense. They're not that big. But these things are going, well, as fast as bullets. Mm. Now, what happened or what would happen if two of them collided, smashed into each other. Now, we're not on Earth anymore. This isn't Kansas. The bits won't fall to Earth because you're traveling so fast, they're in orbit, and they're not being powered in orbit. They're just in orbit. And so all the bits are going to be in orbit too. Now, if we're all traveling in the same direction and the same speed, there'd just be this cloud of fragments that moves around but we're not. Even SpaceX has two sets of orbits, which actually are 90 degrees opposed. So this cloud of fragments is likely to hit another orbiting vehicle, moving at sort of comparable speeds in the other direction, and when they hit, they're going to make more fragments. It's a DDoS attack on itself. (laughs) 
Well, I like to call it a, a fission reaction or a fusion reaction in the nuclear reactor. It's yeah. a bit like that. Fast-moving neutrons, i.e. shards of fragments of previous spacecraft, when they hit other bits of spacecraft, create more. And the ability to pollute this space has to be recognised. Yeah. And well, no one's invented a space vacuum cleaner, a space magnet, and a tractor to bring all this stuff down, and we don't know how. And so oddly enough, here is this unique resource absolutely unique, that little thin belt of orbital sort of stability below the Van Allen belt, above the atmosphere, which is almost a godsend for if you're rural and remote. If you're away from the normal conventional infrastructure in the middle of the Pacific, if you're away from all that, this stuff is brilliant. But if we muck it up, it will never be useful ever, ever, ever again. Wow. Because it's not, well, build better technology. It's kind of, no, you're in this sort of physical sweet spot and there's only one of them, polluted, and there's no plan B. It's just, oh, that was a good idea. Pity we stuffed it. Yeah, that's challenging in our current political and economic circumstances where not everybody is necessarily happy about this use of this technology. That poses risks, Jeff. Well, let me ask the very pointed question because I'm not an American citizen. Why has America been able to colonize and occupy this space and everyone else be excluded? And it's kind of, well, we got there first. Yes, so what? You know, why does everyone else have to pay you guys money, et cetera, et cetera? So this is not a unique situation, but in some ways it's unique because there's only one shot. There's no second chance. If we get it wrong, that wonderful resource is wasted forever and it's never coming back. Wow, that's a very strange place to be. It is, and you kind of go, well, who's in charge? And as I said before, well, nobody, not the UN, nobody. In geostationary, they actually had a number of conventions, and they all agreed to give everybody, I think every country has two slots. The slots are two degrees of, of inclination apart from each other, so they don't crash into each other. And basically, the way they got around the issue was to give every country two slots roughly, roughly directly above them, roughly. Okay, problem solved. But in this case, there's no conferences, there's no convention, and everyone's talking, oh, I can do a 1,000. I can do 2,000. I can do 12,000. I'm sure the numbers will get bigger in the coming months, let alone years. And at some point, it's all just going to fall apart, and that will be very sad. Mm. Fascinating, Jeff. I think there will probably be more stories in this space that we're going to want to talk about. Most interesting. Well, if you are interested in this topic, dear listener, there is a YouTube recording of an APNIC panel that occurred in Manila in the, uh, I think it was last week of February, on LEOs and GEOs and broadband satellite, where Mike Puchol from Kenya, Depanda from Microsoft Research, and Ulrich Speidel uh, from the University of Auckland, all gave us perspectives on their take of what this is about. And I particularly like Mike's view of going, well, there is another 4 billion people on this planet that don't have service from the internet. And in some ways, the cost and difficulty of getting to them with cable is really hard. And these aren't the richest 4 billion, it's the other 4 billion. And the prospect of being able to do this with satellite, with low Earth orbiting satellite, that reaches those 4 billion at a cost that's a lot, lot less than geostationaries is enticing. It's tempting. And you kind of think... It's very interesting. We're close if we do it right. Yeah. We should probably also mention that Dan York from ISOC gave a overview video presentation at that meeting, and it discusses a position paper that ISOC has been working on that kind of canvases a mixture of both the technology questions and the regulatory and other political, social, economic issues in this space. So, dear listener, if you're listening to this in a country that has Starlink licensed and you're listening on a scratchy mobile connection that doesn't quite work, 
and you think, I just need more bandwidth. Well, there is an answer. There is an answer. And certainly the tests that I've done and others have done, you can make it sing and dance. You can make it work just brilliantly. It's amazing stuff. Thank you, Jeff. That was very interesting. It's a pleasure as always. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.